I thought, you know, uh, that I would talk today about not so much the um, point, sort of points of um, law or legal practice, but I'm talk. Uh, I'm looking a little bit at um, questions of translation into law in a number of um, literal and metaphorical ways. Um, this is part of this study of courts, but also um, sort of other venues that deal with family violence in Kolkata, and also venues that deal with the mediation of marriage. And so this is kind of uh, part of this. And um, 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 so at the end of the paper, I'm also talking about a little piece of fieldwork from um, Taka, but in which I haven't completed all that much fieldwork, but hopefully one of these days, some more. Um, so in the legal realm, um, there is this constant translation, right, between cultural worlds and legal apparatuses, between uh, litigants' plain language claims and formal legal language. And you know, in the post-colonial courtroom, in addition, there are some literal translations as between vernaculars, perceived vernaculars, and the sort of local English um, legalese. So um, other translations, uh, less literally, that I'll talk about um, in the later part of the paper, involve putting violence and violation into the language of compensation and compromise. Um, and you know, all kinds of material entitlements and criminal transgressions are at stake as outcomes of such translation. So through an ethnographic analysis of two family courts in Kolkata and Dhaka, um, where litigants um, directly present their cases to judges, I'll talk a little bit more about this in a second, I focus in this paper on these literal and metonymic translations, particularly, and the focus of um, a lot of these cases is the sexed married body. Um, and let me flag again that the nature of the court, the nature of the courts is critical to understanding the processes of adjudication because um, um, the, the, each of these courts serves as um, an experiment with alternate dispute resolution in certain ways in which lawyers are sidelined while judges attempt to work directly with clients. Um, the goals of such mediation being both greater efficiency and greater sensitivity in dealing with matters relating to the family. Sylvia has worked on um, a version of this with somewhat different experiences, but we'll talk about that in a second. Um, now, um, you know, anthropologists and linguists often look at courtroom-related translation as being related to legal process and legal efficiency, right? But I'm looking here at uh, some of the failures of translation and the kind of um, constitutive performative act effects of such failures, including the uh, untranslatability of desire or pain through structures of compensation. So um, I think ethnographic court observations are uniquely able to capture these gaps invisible in the legal record as um, they come to us in appellate cases. Um, the um, post-colonial sexed body is constructed through such discourses while signifying an access that um, an excess that cannot be captured by legal categories. So in the first part of the paper, I want to talk about um, translating literally. And um, let me start by some of my start some of my experiences. So my previous methodologies of conducting interviews and reading texts of appellate cases had not prepared me at all for the dizzying linguistic intricacies of daily translations in the courtroom, mediated by ethnicity, religion, class, or gender. So in the Kolkata Family Court in 2001, I began to track the ways in which the process of translation in the lower courts is strongly triangulated through the judge. So the judge frequently speaks to the litigants in Bangla or in Hindi, depending on the judge's perception of the, litig uh, of the litigants' ethnicity and language skills. Right? 
remember the ethnicity part. So, for example, there is a tendency to address Christian litigants in English, as if you know religion is associated with primary language use. Or to Gujaratis and Marwaris, people not of Bengali ethnicity, in Hindi, not their native language either, even if they are lifelong Kolkata residents and therefore you know likely to be as familiar with Bangla as anyone. So the judge then usually um, listens to their response, usually in the same language then um, translates, transforms, and summarizes this into the record in English, which becomes part of the formal text that lawyers, judges, and scholars subsequently peruse. Um, this is the lower court record. So the judges I have observed were native speakers of Bangla, um, less adept speakers of Hindi, with some exceptions, and used very awkward legal English for documents. And that's, the, that's the language of the record. The process thus has some fundamental gaps between languages of colloquial expression, you know, sort of technical inquiry and legal documentation. And um, that's sort of related to the problematic of, I mean, it's structured in this way, uh, related to eliciting information in a multilingual state. You know, there's the one judge, there are all these languages, while allegedly preserving efficiency by maintaining records in this one national language. Um, so this leads to some interesting transliterations. Um, I should say that there's this sort of delicious irony here of me translating the translations. So <laughs> this leads to some interesting transliterations between colloquial registers of asking and legal categories of information. So in trying to establish whether or not a marriage existed as information for starting a case file, a judge asked, My translation is, were you married in the regular way? Or meaning through a family arranged marriage. So the woman says yes. Um, he translates this into the record as, the question was, put your marriage in the regular way. He translates it as, the wedding was performed according to Hindu rites. So, <laughs> conflating, <laughs> conflating modes of setting up marriage with religious ceremonies <laughs> institute particular forms of marriage, right? So a female petitioner, she was asked, um, she answered a question about her occupation. He says, literally, do you do anything? And more colloquially, do you work anywhere? Um, so she says, no. Um, um, she said no. He translates it, um, sorry, this is a female judge. She translates it into the record as housewife, thereby defined <laughs> as the ex absence of a job. So the final example demonstrates the slippages between legal and common sense meanings particularly well. It's the judge's question asks the petitioner to restate his plea, right? So he asks him, um, literally, what do you want, what do you need, right? Um, legally and technically, he's asking, um, what are you applying for? And so he says to him, what do you want? Um, clearly escaped the man who said Kituna, nothing. Um, <laughs> indicating <that laughs> he says, indicating that he's not seeking either maintenance or custody. So he's promptly reprimanded by the judge who says, saying, um, <laughs> why are you, what do you mean you don't want anything? Are you in court for a vacation? <laughs> so, and he stammered and said, mutual divorce, right? So there's a gap between what you're asked and how you answer. So in all of these cases, the judge's words bridge legal and colloquial terms, creating equivalence between approximate and sometimes fairly distant terms, um, which becomes the basic text for further um, legal interventions. So while divorce case is in any co divorce court is in any case a space that is marked by the public dismantling of the private realm of marriage, um, linguistic slippages are particularly marked as sites of unease when it comes to topics that are the most taboo or intimate. One critical area here is that of proving the consummation of marriage, right? Um, a legal standard upon which rests the validity of marriage, you know, whether they had sex or not, and the economic and custodial rights that flow from it, but one in which direct evidence is elusive. 
So the judges need to ask about consummation. That is about having sex within marriage, but find themselves resorting to numerous slates of phrase. These include asking, which literally would be, was the wedding consumed? Likely a malapropism, meaning consummated. Right? Translating, do you have any children as um, also translated as the marriage was consummated? And the particularly confusing, meaning asking, have you lived together as husband and wife, also translated as the marriage was consummated? So, so because this phrase assumes a conflation between sexual consummation and cohabitation or living in the same house, I observed an instance of miscommunication where a woman replied in the negative to having lived together as husband and wife. She said she hadn't, um, because she had never been taken to live in his house after a registered marriage. And then went on to describe her pregnancy. <laughs> so <laughs> that's not what the question had asked. So um, one of the court um, helpers suggested here that perhaps um, they might say something like Shamistri Shamporko, the relationship of husband and wife, um, might be the most approximate, uh, appropriate approximation. But that also doesn't you know, specify what aspect of a conjugal relationship is being interrogated or assumes the sexual as the defining register of a conjugal relationship. So some, sometimes I run a little experiment around this. How would you say, in for those of you who know Bengali or any other, how would you say, um, has your marriage been or did you have sex? How do you say that in Bangla? <laughs> not just you. So I could, you know, pile on these examples infinitely. You know, they're amusing and horrifying and showing the inadequacies of fitting into legal categories. But they're significant, however, not so much as mistranslations as they're indexing a certain kind of methodology critical to the family court. And so let me say a little bit more about this kind of court, right? Um, now, you know, Sylvia and I have been talking for some years about, you know, how many different kinds of courts um, this notion of the new family courts describe which were set up in India to decrease the backlog of cases pertaining to family law. So in India, that's adoption, um, custody, maintenance, guardianship, and divorce. I forgot divorce. Um, but um, they also um, emphasize particular methods, right? So the, in fact, the text of the law does say um, that um, sort of for the health of marriage, putting it together in a certain way is um, important. So in this particular, this particular court in Kolkata is visualized as a lawyer-free court, um, as Rajuna said, where clients could pursue their own cases in their own words with the help of judges and counselors who are, remember this, counselors are persons hired to assist in mediation and you know um, assist people with their cases. So in this court, whose legal innovativeness consists of litigants speaking in plain language, supposedly, in their own language, to the judge without the so-called alienating mediation of lawyers, judges' transformations of litigants' claims to legal categories are the only mode of transfer of information. So there's not, you know, typically, there's no translator, there's no lawyer, etc. But this is not a simple process of oral claims being reported as legal cases. Eh? So litigants write out their claims, often with the help of these counselors, in the form of petitions. These petitions are treated as documents immediately, which the litigant must confirm through oral deposition in the courtroom. Litigants are, for example, being constantly scolded by judges because they answer question in ways, questions in ways that do not exactly correspond to their written plaints. And this alternate style courtroom is, in fact, very much a part of the formal legal system. This is the lower level court in the jurisdictions in which it has been created. So the legal record then created by judges becomes the formal document that is the basis of subsequent claims. So 
in these plain language courts then, so allegedly plain language courts, legal language is anything but direct and unmediated. Ironically, the desire to see people bring their stories directly to court is rendered through correct answers to judges' questions, right? So you, you confirm your own claims rather than telling your story, to use that metaphor. So acts of translation are erased other than in the ethnographic moment. Voices have to be made appropriate, often forcefully. Litigants have to be reminded that a deposition or giving witness testimony is a form of iteration, not you know, a speech act in itself. Um, sexual matters which would rather be elided have got to become explicit. So the process trains litigants to live in and speak in the socio-legal world they approach rather than working from their narratives to resolve the problems they bring to the law, which is if you read the law, that's sort of how it looks. And uh, discourses of conjugality, as you'll see, are constituted through these uh, disciplinary processes. And one of the things you'll see here is the ways in which litigants' non-compliance, confusion, humor, anger, are some of the modes through which such translation is interrupted. Now, let me just briefly say that um, I kind of began thinking about this in terms of anthropological and other work on translation and courtrooms. Um, there's sort of a big body of work on anthropological research on the effects of literal translation in courtrooms that uh, showing that um, interpretation in bilingual courtrooms brings in a new set of meanings in, in excess of what litigants depose. Um, so for example, um, uh, Burke, Sellingson, Hale, they've looked at um, additions and alterations in interpretation by court translators. Um, and they would argue, you know, um, the pragmatics of both the source and the target languages affect court records. Um, they argue that an interpreter is not an invisible medium, but someone who plays an active role in constructing the legal subject. Um, so the cases here deal with judges, not interpreters or paralegals or lawyers. But um, while the points about active construction of legal meanings continues to be relevant here, um, the specific focus is actually on um, unlike in those other situations, the dual authority of creating the legal record through translation as well as pronouncing judgment on the basis of that record. So a related category in the transformation of the translation of experience into strategic legal categories that occur within the same language, um, sorry, um, related categories, the transformation of experience into legal categories um, in the same language. And the slippage is kind of inherent in um, turning life histories and perceptions of grievance into um, legal reports. So again, uh, uh, Trench and Burke Seligson have this report on uh, protective order hearings in a DA's office, right, where Latina women attempted to tell stories of abuse, while paralegals interviewing them tried to elicit reports of abuse. That's, the, uh, that's how it's formulated. Um, Clark Cunningham famously evokes translation as a paradigm for lawyers' tasks. Acknowledging the, acknowledging the necessities and constraints of that process, he says, the metaphor of the lawyer as translator is a way of both understanding and altering the way lawyers change the meaning of their client's stories. No sentence can be perfectly translated from one language to another. If one feels a sense of loss in speaking through a translator, there is also something to be gained. By speaking through a translator, one can be heard and understood in places where um, otherwise one is mute. And so here, I mean, people have argued that um, these mediating presences, in this case, lawyers, translators, et cetera, um, increase the sort of efficiency of the process, right? They make it possible to be heard. But um, <coughs> contrary to uh, folks like Cunningham, uh, post-structuralist accounts kind of look to law as a technology, right? That may be availed of in seeking a particular outcome, a space to perform normative discourses. 
Um, they problematize the idea that legal agency is out there to be expressed, that real grievances need to be narrated for better justice, right? As if there is a real story that could be told. Um, so, um, so Hirsch, for example, um, looking at gender, adopts the framework from kind of Butler and Foucault that people are constituted and constitute themselves as gendered subjects in um, relation to discourse. Um, that because people interact with con um, legal conventions, they are able to be compliant or they're able to make some sort of transformations possible that they're not just um, controlled by discourse. So um, language functions in a more dynamic way in these accounts. So <coughs> in these accounts, translations to legal discourse are part of performative strategies in the realm of law um, with conspicuous gaps and erasures. And moments of agency are not impossible within law, but neither are they unmediated. So um, again, in these um, approaches, there is a focus on the effectiveness and smoothness of translation. Right? That's, that's what folks are looking at. But um, um, I thought if you put against this scholars who theorize translation studies within kind of deconstructionist frameworks, um, depict smooth and seamless translation as a form of erasure, right? There is a call to keep translation jagged, to preserve a mark of excess after the transfer to a different currency or a medium is completed. So um, uh, Benjamin's Task of the Translator, for example, is one of the central texts that tracks the difficulty of translation. He visualizes translation not as, he said, this is his phrase, not as reproduction, but as harmony, as a transfer that does not cover the original. So quote, a translation instead of resembling the meaning of the original must lovingly and in detail incorporate the original's mark of signification, thus making both the original and the translation recognizable as fragments of a greater language. Um, or in the politics of translation, similarly Gayatri Spivak argues evocatively that, that she, um, quote, the task of the translator is to facilitate the love between the original and its shadow, a love that permits fraying, she says. Um, James McGuire says in his work on Khatibi, the question is not, is really is not what language to write, but rather how to write two languages simultaneously, how to write a life lived between languages. So while these calls um, for marked literary translation refer to very different modes of practice and context, um, I sort of use them to think through legal translation in critical ways. In the translation such as I discussed in this paper, the legal record is constituted through an instantaneous filtering and interpretation of litigants' accounts, right? So when we look at efficiency and process for b that is necessary for speedy and coherent outcomes in law, of course, you know, law is a um, technical process with material outcomes at stake. Um, but in these processes, narratives pursued by litigants and narratives elicited from them are erased, and their sense of injuries and harm become invisible in legal documentation, as you'll see. So. Um, Fractures of negotiation are removed because legibility to institutions, you know, becomes the paramount aim. Um, but you know, some of these ethnographic moments uh, let us mark these gaps in translation, and therefore gaps in subjectivity. So let me move on to talking about a couple of specific cases. So first, um, the section is called "Translating Sex: Reading Bodies and Habits," and I apologize in advance for the X-rated, triple X-rated section. <laughs> But um, I'll talk a little bit about um, case law, and then I'll talk about a particular case. So um, nowhere is the illusion between meanings sought in law and culturally acceptable modes of speaking more prominent than in attempts to define the sexual body. Um, as the cases below demonstrate, the uh, later demonstrate the state is always involved in here constituting particular bodily signs as being appropriate modes of heteronormative sexual behavior, consent, and desire. Right? 
So to do so, it has to read against the grain of cultural practices around the silences and ambiguities of sex and the body. But as you'll see, materialities of the body are the very ground of the debate. But the terms of that materiality are themselves con uh, constructed through the debate. Um, so, you know, to quote Butler again, <laughs> sex not only functions as a norm, but it's part of the regulatory practice that produces the bodies it governs. So to, I'm going to talk particularly about Indian family law, which is related to valid marriages, particularly this question of sexual shortcomings as grounds of divorce. So um, um, we have two of the grounds on which um, Hindu marriages, um, case law here refers to mostly to Hindu marriages, may be rendered invalid or void are impotence and fraud. Right? Fraud is relevant in this context because parties to a marriage could have been deliberately kept in the dark about sexual problems. So in case there are um, alleged sexual problems often come into divorce through, through grounds of fraud, <coughs> as in it was hidden from them. Um, one may get a divorce, quote, if the marriage has not been consummated, that word again, owing to the impotence of the um, respondent. So. Impotence is legally classified into the following categories, physical and psychological, both described as organic. I don't make up these words. And impotence qua a particular person described as atonic. So just I'll just read you a little paragraph of the definition. Physical potency implies in the male ability to achieve erection and penetration, called vira copula, though not necessarily ejaculation. And in the female, the physical capacity to be penetrated naturally or as a result of surgery and regardless of whether or not she has functioning female organs. Mental incapacity implies an emotional, psychological, or moral repugnance to the sexual act, which may be only qua the petitioner and not per se. These are the two grounds. As in, you can <laughs> be repulsed by a particular person or across the board. And which is to be distinguished from willful refusal to submit to sexual intercourse, which amounts to desertion or arguably to cruelty. So desertion and cruelty are the two related grounds for divorce which center around a conscious lack of willingness to have sex rather than an incapacity to do so. And by the way, three days and three nights in the same room has constituted the judicial standard for ample opportunity to consummate the marriage, in case you want to know how long it takes. So as you could immediately notice, the standard of potency for both sexes is penetrability alone, right? No links to sexual satisfaction or even to reproduction importance. So heterosexual penetration stands as uh, the sole standard which legitimizes marriage, um, according to this definition. We'll see that not so much. Mental incapacity towards sex is seen as a form of impotence, but lack of willful consent constitutes desertion, which is a different ground of divorce. That is, impotency is classified primarily as a bodily effect, a failure of physical or mental functions. Um, so uh, Brooke, who studies uh, matrimonial law and sexuality in the Australian ACT, points out such criteria also serve to consolidate heterosexual conjugality as fundamental to the state, as consummation becomes the corporeal yoke linking law in marriage. Um, quoting from her, <coughs> while sex in general can be understood as a range of actions and behaviors, consummation refers to one specific type of sex which was legally invested with meaning such that it, rather than other sexual acts, comes to stand as sex as such or as all sex. So, um, um, However, the Indian appellate record on impotence is really consistently murky, right? Uh, Patricia Uberoy, who's looked at some of these cases, says that it, when it comes to impotency and cons consent issues, Indian judges have waffled between marriage as a legal status with well-defined rights for parties 
or a set of sacramental commitments, such as for women to become fully identified with their affinal families, the families of marriage, or for marriage to be indissoluble, except in um, extreme cases. So um, penetration, defined in terms of erection and women's penetrability, continues to be the standard. But judges show some ambivalence as to whether impotence or sterility should be the most significant issue in dissolving a marriage. Um, varying on whether um, sexual desire or the desire for children is supposed to be a primary characteristic of marriage. Note that the definition already shifts, right? So um, if you look at the intersections of sexual and contractual agency and consent, you can you know, further kind of track this judicial ambivalence. So let me just talk about a couple, uh, a little bit of the terrain of case law here. So markers of women's, here women's first, legal impotence and sexual fraud have often de-emphasized the body itself and focused on contextual decision making. So the case Ruby Roy versus um, Sudarshan Roy erases questions of desire and ability altogether in favor of questions of contractual validity. Here, the husband alleged fraud because he said his wife was devoid of female organs and incapable of cohabitation. Notice the jump to the residential. Um, with, he said she had burn marks and no right breast and only a nipple as a left breast. So the case rested on whether the husband's father's knowledge of these marks constituted the son's knowledge. And the judge's decision that it did, that the husband's father knew, and that the husband was therefore bound to a surrogate contract, placed questions of agency or even functionality outside the realm of the conjugal couple. Right? Um, in the Godino case, another case, impotence is measured in terms of behavior, invoking neither contract nor penetrability. The wife was determined to be impotent qua her husband. There's the qua again. Despite, she was deemed to be impotent qua her husband, despite having had a child with him, it was held because he had forcibly had sex with her, but she had always remained sexually averse to him. You know, he had always forced her, but she didn't, never liked it. You know, The marital rape may have some connection to the aversion. But, but um, so women's preference for sex in pleasant circumstances is highlighted in this case. So Danand Ravul versus uh, Suloshana Ravul. The husband alleged that the wife had abnormal sex organs and a strong aversion to sex. The wife countered that she had normal organs, but that their few episodes of sex, quote, were not happy occasions on account of shortcoming of premature ejaculation on the part of the husband. In determining that there was little to prove the husband's allegation, the court declared that the wife is a poor, illiterate lady determined to maintain the marital tie, come what may, lacking the guile and intelligence necessary, their words, to fake normalcy in a medical exam, and pointed to their living arrangements with the extended family in a small room as lacking the privacy that, quote, was the primary requirement for a couple to have pleasant sexual intercourse. Non-consummation could not be considered proof of a woman's impotence, and the burden of proof lay with the man to prove it, the court declared, um, in Mangodasani versus Srimati uh, Mohani. In one of these cases of relative impotency, the judge declaring that, it is now an established law of medical phenomenon that the wife can be potent yet mentally impotent depending on some psychological reasons. So here you see, so in all of these cases, both women's economic necessity to have sex to stay married as well as the standards of pleasant circumstances as a reasonable expectation. That is, married women's choice to refuse sex in cer certain circumstances are invoked in these cases to counter constructions of women's impotency. Contrary to Uberoi's contention and the legal definition, Penetrability, therefore, is not the necessary standard. Um, so for men, on the other hand, have been held to more rigid standards of bodily potency. I did not intend that pun as. In, uh, in LB versus AV, 
The wife contended that her husband was impotent qua her because they had only had sex once on what she called their disastrous honeymoon when she had lured him much to his disgust. But the judge pointed out that impotence could not be claimed if he had managed to have sex once, seduced against his will or not. So notice how the, you know, the flip of the other thing sort of doesn't work. Um, impotency here is dif uh, depicted in terms of the singular, any one time, rather than the habitual. <coughs> and in general, male potency is defined not in terms of fertility, but rather erection and penetrability. Standard being the concern for women's presumed sexual satisfaction um, equated with uh, penile penetration, or the notion that he was not deemed fully functional. So there is more absoluteness, and questions of consent or mood are not invo invoked in the ways they are for women. So this terrain of sex, body and mind, set up by these appellate decisions are not strictly followed as precedents in the family court, right? which I'm about to talk about. But these kind of influence the terms of the interrogation. So um, in this case that I'll discuss, you look at several similar modes of translating bodily moments into legally determinative categories, but allows us to Im um, examine processes of investigation in the ethnographic moment. You know, so let's look at this trail of bodily evidence. So in this case, um, excuse me, involves charges of insanity and impotence, alleged by the husband, and a countersuit of maintenance from the wife. So reading from my notes. I've obviously assigned them names. So, Proshun is smartly dressed in a white striped shirt and brown pants, who works for a Tata affiliate at about rupees 6,000 a month. I would say low middle to middle income. Rima looks plainer in an anayan black sari, wearing a little bit of gold and red shankha bracelets and vermilion in her hair, signifiers of marital status. Long oily hair, plump rounded lips. Her mother sits on the bench close to me. This is from my notes. Somewhat blind in a limp white sari. The court counselor whispers to me that they are very poor and her mother put most of the money into the daughter's wedding. Um, the counselor seems overtly sympathetic to uh, Rima, the woman's narrative, though representing both parties. So Proshun has alleged that Rima is insane and that he found this out in the course of four months uh, spent together. Proshun alleges that Rima had a physical problem having sex and that he had wanted children. So first he's up in the court. The judge takes him through the details of the events and he admits that they had spent the night in the same room during the Pulshodja ceremony, the conjugal night of the wedding. Once at her parents, he's hesitant to um, answer what exactly happened on these conjugal occasions. And so she, the judge, clears the courtroom, saying she needs to do this and will clear the other cases. So, so once the courtroom is cleared, ten people left. He asked her, "So what happened?" She said, "Oh, we talked a bit on those occasions and then fell asleep." So KB, the judge, asked, "Did you try to kiss her?" He said, yes, but she said no. So the judge says, what Bengali woman from a good family is going to say, come, consume me now. How she's supposed to say, yes, kiss me. Kevi tells him his wife was shy. She asks him if he persisted with trying to have sex with her. He says, yes, upon which he asks, she asks, if he sought advice from his friends or read anything about having sex. He says, no. Following which she dictates into the record in his voice. Note, he, he asked her, did you ask your friend? She said, no. She dictates into the record, 
I had no idea and concept of how to consummate a married life. <laughs> Another remarkable example of legal transliteration. At that point, he mutters that, well, he talked to his friends a bit. Asked about her insanity, he says he saw her briefly before marriage and didn't sense problems, but later thought something was abnormal and stayed away. Prashun said she spoke roughly sometimes. Um, KB reminds him that rough behavior is not tantamount to insanity and that he should have her examined by a doctor if she was going to make that claim. And judges often say this, right? You can't just say someone is insane. You need some medical proof. KB tells him that he could talk about bad adjustment and lack of understanding, but insanity is a different matter. So then Rima is cross-examined. KB asks Rima about the details of the pool shoja, the conjugal night again. If anyone else played pranks or hid in the room, these are common practices of the ritual event. She says no, that her husband shut the door and she didn't object to that, and that they had physical relations that night. KB asked if she had, she asked her, did you have the usual obstruction jita made thake? So the obstruction that women customarily have, you know, speaking roundabout ways of talking. And Rima said she didn't notice anything like that. According to Shilpa, Prashun has alleged that Rima was pregnant before marriage bef because he found stretch marks on her breasts. The counselor says, well, the stretch marks were related to her breasts. And asked me, how can he make allegations if he hasn't seen her breasts? Right? So there's some doubt about whether she has had sex before or not. Rima says she didn't get pregnant after this conjugal night because Prashun said he didn't want to have children yet. So KB, the judge, asks about birth control. She says, did you use any? She says, no. To which um, KB comments in, comments in inimitably bad Hindi at an attempt at humor. Um, I, and here my translation is you know, really inadequate. She says, Nirod nahi tha to birod kaise hua? Like, how did you create a barrier if you had no condoms? You know, this does very little to capture her pun between Nirod, which is a once ubiquitous and now old style at the time of the hearing, brand name of condom, and Birod as a kind of alternate word for you know, obstruction. So this then is explained to Rima, who doesn't understand, and she says I, she didn't know that. She didn't know why she didn't get pregnant. So I present this thicker description by way of suggesting the complex narratives through which sexuality is talked about in court as opposed to points of law authorized to, through appellate cases as I did earlier, right? Prominent here are techniques of reading the body, the hymen, the breasts, as a system of signs that have to be read into juridical discourse. Some of the ways in which the body is deemed to speak is through lacks or absences that can be ambivalently construed as evidence. So are stretch marks on breasts about a fat body or a once pregnant body? Can the lack of a visibly ruptured hymen say anything definitive about successfully executed sex? Is it penile penetration or shattered hymen that sets the terms of consummation? Is the lack of pregnancy despite lack of contraception in a single event to be interpreted as physical defect, thereby conflating um, intercourse and instant fertility and signaling fertility as a standard of impotency contrary to all the case law? So imputations that the wife is not a virgin hover at the edges of this discourse, right? Even though this is a not a legal standard connected to divorce in any way. So there is closeness and even conflation between grounds for impotency and insanity and cruelty. The husband's testimony with regard to insanity cites her occasional rough behavior, her refusal to go out with him alongside her sexual behavior and failure to be pregnant. Here, is asexual affect necessarily pathological? How do consent, compatibility, and atmosphere count? The judge's questions indicate that she will not grant that the woman's reticence to be sexually active could be interpolated as impotence. She introduces the notion of creating preparedness, even seduction, 
as a new criterion that creates an onus upon the husband and turns the issue back to his putative lack of skill. Significantly, these criteria are different from these legal standards of impotence qua a particular person or refusal to have sex, which may be held tantamount to the legal ground of cruelty. Her behavior here echoes the appellate record, right? Um, Uberoi presents judges concerned with first night etiquette. Uh, judges have talked about a want of elementary courtship on the part of husbands, um, Derrick calls it. Specifically, that brides may be revulsed from sex and therefore marriage too early, and thereby the entire edifice of marriage may be in jeopardy. So that's the concern from judges. In this formulation, gendered norms of sexuality are used both to exempt and limit women in terms of sexual agency. While the wife is not expected to uh, be sexually assertive to be deemed potent, she is also contained by this normative characterization of that sexuality, assumed to be hesitant and shy, assumed to be the recipient of sexual knowledge, etc. So um, to conclude this section, in the cases discussed here, a sexed body is produced through legal discourse and um, the body is read as sign and symptom. Note that these symptoms are produced in line with legal categories which draw upon dominant but also negotiated discourses of sexuality. On the one hand, expert, expert knowledge is constructed through intrusive interrogative um, processes that purport to translate the body against a person's narrative. Um, Pratiksha Bakshi's analysis of medical evidence in rape trials kind of vividly describes this process. She says, law recreates rape in order to know it has happened and society has been harmed. Um, similarly, the loss of virginity on the conjugal night here is recreated in the courtroom under discussion by looking at bodily symptoms and motives. So finally, in my last 10 minutes, to talk about this section that I call translating harm, settlements, and sexual violence. Um, and here I'm moving countries, borders. So the family court courtroom sets up translation and equivalence not only between words, but between experiences requiring harm or redressal and legal remedy. Most commonly, the mediation or resolution of a case involves translation into the terms of a settlement. A remedy is assigned a monetary value and negotiated until the parties are satisfied. Um, in foregrounding mediation, family courts often try to use economic settlements to clear cases and achieve practical economic solutions. So criminal remedies are secondary outcomes, uh, the primary purpose being financial settlement. Yet these mediations come up against litigants for whom the kind of logic of economic efficiency leaves the violence of marriage um, untranslated. So one could see these in the family court I've been describing so far. But I'm going to draw on a case from my very brief um, fieldwork in Dhaka um, and a slightly different kind of family court. So here, this Family Court Act is passed in 1985 at about the same time as the Indian one. These family courts are just designated as set-aside courts handling divorce, maintenance, custody, and guardianship with no focus on mediation. But since 2000, three of the Dhaka family courts have been designated as mediation courts by the law ministry. Fifteen civil courts in the city send some cases to these mediation courts. Um, that is, mediation courts are a subset of the uh, Dhaka family courts. Um, and consultants to this project recommended the technique of directive mediation in which judges were asked to guide actively. Um, they had said earlier that this might not work, but then they thought this would be a good idea. So this intervention appears to have jump-started a program that is often touted as a symbol of immensely successful um, legal intervention. Monetary recovery and associated well-being as well as caseload reduction are referred to as these primary indices of success. 70% of cases brought under, these um, brought under these courts in Dhaka were resolved, didn't end up on the trial docket. There was a threefold um, 
increase in money granted through the courts in comparing the first three months, uh, for six months of two thousand. Sorry, whatever. I think I've written this in a confusing way. Anyway, the money increase, the money going out through the courts increased threefold. And you know, the judge whose courtroom I talk about thought was very pleased with himself for what he thought he had been able to do for women. So one morning I watched, you know, as this judge inquired about the well-being of a woman in her 30s in a plain burqa, he wrote out her monthly check. He said to me later, she had to wait 12 years before I resolved her case through mediation. That's what pleases me. When I begin to see her clothes get less tattered, that there's more flesh on her bones. He claimed he had um, awarded her 5 million, um, 500,000, sorry, taka through his courtroom alone since he started, more than is given out even in courts that deal with commercial matters in a given year, he said. In his view, mediation had been particularly successful at breaking down the intransigence of legal process towards greater efficiency, but also through, as he describes, this literal transformation of bodies and lives. So Laura Nader, you know, often talks about alternative dispute resolution as being rampantly fetishized as one of the pillars of what she calls coercive harmony, in a great phrase. She urges greater attention to questions of power and silence in these venues. So let's track that a little bit. In the following case, um, look in particular at the fetishization of the economic bottom line, right? the calculation of net financial gain as the objective. It is part of the nature of these proceedings that grievances, in addition to economic entitlements, are translated into monetary terms, and that a range of violations, perhaps not necessarily translatable, have to be metonymically translated through these um, questions of settlement and gain. So settling a case is always an ambivalent image of simultaneously closing out and giving up, right? It's a driving force behind these quotes. A group of young judges discussing this disposal of litigation regaled me with this, with this legal, um, with metaphors for legal burden, right? The horrific other of settlement. Right? So um, there's this commonly circulated um, cartoon called the suit cow, which um, thinks of the lawsuit as a fertile cow which provides an um, endless supply of nourishment. Um, another saying they loved, um, they say, So the client is like an abundant fruit-bearing tree in the lawyer's orchard. Right? Um, refers again to images of endless financial delivery, of clients being wrung dry. Mediation, therefore, is seen to break the cycle of growing impoverishment from litigation. So persuasions or threats to clients were most often translated in terms of economic consequences by the judge. So, um, for example, this, the judge would say to someone, he said, oh, um, your wife looks like there's no, he's trying to threaten this man into doing the right thing. He says, your wife looks like there's nothing in her body and she has no money. She's here with legal aid. She can keep her case going. I see you have a watch and a, I see you have a watch now. You're not going to have that anymore in a couple of years. So <laughs> moral admonitions were thus commonly framed through this consequence of destitution. So let's look at this one case where the bargains and limitations of mediation are particularly marked. It's an in-camera hearing brought back for renegotiation after the initial session was unsuccessful. And it concerns post-divorce maintenance. So briefly, under um, uh, Muslim family law in Bangladesh, a woman cannot claim lifelong alimony, but she can get a three-month payment following divorce, child support payments, and deferred dower or meher of Andin Mohor in Bangla as specified in the marriage contract, plus other fines as levied by judges. So the judges have you know, some leeway to make economic awards. So here, youngish couple, uh, Farid in trousers and light shirts, smartly dressed, Firoza very fair and pretty in a faded silver kameez. Her father, who looks old in a lungi with a traditional goatee and a skull cap, accompanies her. 
the children come in first, you know, then they're sent out. And he, the husband, tries to grab the girl, you know, say, come sit with me. And the judge kind of snaps at him. So I sensed that um, something had, you know, so the judge was like, not feeling pleased with him. Anyway, he had offered 300 taka, which is a very small amount for three of the ch each of the three children last time. So now upping it to 500 taka plus 30,000 um, taka towards her dower amount. And she sought to um, double that and get about um, four times what she was offering for the children to a more reasonable amount. He didn't seem agreeable to this, so they sent the man's side away. And this following negotiation is with Firoza and her father. The judge speaks to the father first, addressing him respectfully as Baba. He says um, it's in their best interest to have the case go away. If he can get them to compromise on an amount, he assures them that he will put his judicial authority into ensuring that the husband does not default on his payments by imposing a condition of uh, um, 150,000 taka penalty, so far higher than the amount defaulted on, or else he can send them to jail. So he says if he doesn't pay up, I'll either fine him or I'll send him to jail so you can be rest assured of the money. At this point, Firoza, the wife, breaks in to tell the judge a very long narrative of the case, a kind of testimonial that her husband raped an 11-year-old servant um, girl at their place. At that point, she says, she stood behind him, testified for him against the girl, and her family paid much of the legal expenses, and he got off. Farid would beat her up, her, the wife, and was suspicious of all her relationships, she insists. Her father helped Farid's business in all sorts of ways. She says, I want him to acknowledge all the things he has done. The money is not the important thing. The judge explains the deal again, emphasizing the equation. This way you can get the money from him right away. Get him where it hurts. If you persist with the trial, you will lose a lot of money in the process and will have to survive through, it, through that. And who knows what the result will be. If you persist with the criminal charges as well, this will last 10 years and he may not be convicted. Or if he is convicted, he will appeal, which may take as long again, and you will not be getting any money, only spending it. After a long pause, Firoza says heavily, if I take the money he's offering, Allah will save, I have forgiven him on the day of Qiyamah, Judgment Day. She then describes the last night when Farid was violent towards her, implying sexual violence, saying there was not a part of her body that was not left bitten and bloodied. To this, the judge responds. He says, Allah visualizes Judgment Day as a court, implying another metaphor, right, of, of um, legal burden, implying that court is a hellish place where one doesn't want to keep being in. He offers that the greatest peace might lie in taking the money now. Firoza says in a reluctant voice, whatever you want, but also says simultaneously that she cannot accept that 30,000 taka. So the mediation session is deemed to be unsuccessful. It's failed. Another date is set for trial. It's going to trial. So here the case exemplifies the moral currency of divorce and maintenance payments, the translation of injury and inconvenience into financial reparation. The judge, deservedly known as a skillful negotiator, right, moves smoothly between pragmatics and theology, Responding to Firoza in terms of the same discourse she articulates, turning the metaphor of Judgment Day to evoke trials as a living nightmare of hell, punning on judgment in the legal and religious sense. But while he can uh, match this discursive register, as mediator he cannot move out of the evocation of convenience and peace, and financial restitution is the prime equivalence of those terms. One is reminded of Nader's warning that studies of ADR have revealed practices of controlling the definition of the problem and the form of its expression, including the prohibition of anger, right? So anger is not to be part of this process. But what about Firoza's motivations? Here, a woman who was clearly in severe economic distress turned down a stable and regular source of funds while potentially committing herself to years of expenses with little hope of a final payoff. At the simplest level, 
cynically, her gesture may, of course, be read as that of a tough negotiator holding out for more in the mediation process. But her detailed emotional account of um, numerous betrayals and violations can also be seen to mark moments of you know, discursive disruption, signifying that needs other than the financial were being negotiated. Sexual violence, for example, was not to be rendered simply invisible through a payoff. It had to be brought up si out of silence and avenged in some form, whether through testimony, trial, or an acknowledgment of guilt through payment of the higher sum. We can't determine whether the evocation of Judgment Day was an attempt to really resolve a religious dilemma or a brilliantly moving strategic point. But the case nonetheless lays open the complicated modes within which legal disputes operate. Um, for the complex grievances that are sought to be resolved through the you know, streamlined efficiency of the mediation court, there is the potential that a trial in all its messiness may serve as a public testimonial of betrayal and violation, and that financial satisfaction may be an inadequate reparation because it fails to incorporate registers such as the religio-cultural or the conjugal sexual. So finally, to translation beyond equivalence, um, translation again is imagined as a tool of efficiency, a mode of optimal transfer. Um, similarly, settlements through mediation processes try to establish an equivalence between grievance and solution to construct litigants' narratives through available legal categories. But I hope, as these ethnographic details of courtroom interaction demonstrate, Translation can only be seen as seamless if the unruly moments which struggle to fit within legal discourse <coughs> are invisible. Um, disciplinary processes of legal knowledge gathering and reparation exist alongside litigants' attempts to conform to performative expectations as well as their confusions and struggles. Um, judges' admonitions to be faithful to written depositions, the awkwardness of determining sex within marriage, judges' insistence on eliminating grievance through money and the inadequacy of economic settlements to address violence um, are all part of this match. I think I like that.